Well, for the past two weeks, Pastor Steve has challenged us to refocus ourselves and our community on the center, which is Jesus Christ. And I hope to continue in that vein of refocusing today and continually pursuing the center, but I'm gonna leave the drawing of pictures to Pastor Steve and his whiteboard. I only had the guys bring this up here this morning because uh, for the number of times my email address was handed out last week, <laughs> my favorite and recurring comment or request was that I help Steve actually find the center of the circle. <laughs> we aim to please. <laughs> actually, I wanna show you a different picture. It's not one that any of us drew, all right? So take a look at this. I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of optical illusion, aren't you? These drawings that are designed to draw your eye toward one color instead of the other, which then brings into focus one of two pictures that's actually contained in this image. When I look at this thing, I see two people looking at each other. Do you see that? It's pretty obvious. I don't really have to exert much energy. But when I was told there were two pictures contained within this image, I had to work really, really hard to see the second one. Absurdly hard, if I can be completely transparent. So hard that this week, as this thing sat on my desk, and mind you, I've seen this a million times before, but I sat there thinking, there has to be something wrong with me because I'm having to work so hard to see it. I squinted. I strained, I crossed my eyes and brought them back into focus. I took a step nearer to it and then one further away. And after all of this, I could still only see those faces. So I first became familiar with this particular optical illusion a number of years ago when a friend of mine who's an elementary school teacher had this hanging up on a bulletin board in her classroom. I went to visit with her after school one day because she was going through kind of a difficult time. And so I went intending to be an attentive listener. And then I saw this and I got real, real distracted. <laughs> the sign above it on the bulletin board read, can you see both images here? Why no? No, I could not. And I stared and I stared and I stared at it and I became a little bit stressed out with this thing. So much so that my friend noticed my visible duress and she came over to me and treated me a bit like I assumed she would have treated one of her second graders having a midday meltdown. She put her arm around my shoulders and then in that soft, soothing teacher voice, she said, Emily, look at the white space. And it was like a switch flipped in my brain because all of the sudden I could look right past those faces and I saw a goblet. Sorry if that's a spoiler for any of you out there still trying to figure it out. It's there, stick with it. <laughs> this may not seem significant to you, but it was sort of a mind-blowing moment for me where all of a sudden the mental roadblock I had been in was lifted and her simple words of instruction helped me find a different point of focus. A focus that was absolutely necessary if I was going to be able to see something that met my immediate gaze. This is kind of a silly story, and I realize that these pictures are intended to be game-like in nature. But it occurred to me this week that in many ways, the parables of Jesus are the literary equivalent of this kind of optical illusion. 
Because so often when we read them, we make immediate assumptions about them, about their meanings and their messages, because we grab onto what's most obvious to us, what's most accessible, and then we become fixated on those pieces of the story. And this is not insignificant because as people who believe that the word of God is transforming, then the way we interpret and understand scripture, even initially, has great impact. It shapes and forms what we believe and how we live. But I started to wonder, what if like this picture, the fullness of the parables of Jesus Christ can only be understood if we step back and refocus, if we look at the white space of them, if you will, and pursue the totality of what Jesus desires for us to understand in them. Because at its core, the gospel is about God and his people engaging with one another. And I think this is probably why Jesus taught in parables in the first place. He could have just plainly proclaimed what he wanted us to understand, right? but he chose this method. And yet so often, I know for me at least, I find myself more drawn to reading the stories of the miracles of Jesus over the parables. Miracles just seem easier to me. I mean, we have a problem of monumental proportion, disease, demons, death, the usual stuff. And Jesus enters the scene and he speaks or he acts and the problem goes away. So at least upon initially reading these stories, they become almost like convenience food to our faith. We can grab them and go. We think there's less there to wrestle with hermeneutically. That's not actually true, but we'll save that sermon for another day. But the parables can be tricky. As one author said, Christ's parables entertain the many who are merely curious about him, but they truly enlighten the few who genuinely seek to know him. In other words, parables are intentionally complex. They're not designed to help us find easy truth. Jesus is not obvious in these lessons about his authority or his power. There's not a spectacle to behold or to be amazed by. Instead, in them, he encourages us to listen. Not just hear, but really lean in and engage with him because what he's telling us is dense and it's loaded and layered with the truth of the kingdom of God. So if you're anything like me and you've resonated these past Sundays with this encouragement to refocus on pursuing Jesus rather than just having an encounter with him, moving past the point of just being saved or being a part of the community to truly believing that the fully transformed life is possible here and now through him, then it would make sense to me that we're gonna have to work a little bit to understand this, that it's not just gonna be easy truth for our consumption. Instead, Jesus invites us in these parables to look again, to turn his words over and over again in our minds, to grapple with them even, and to refocus so that our faith can be strengthened as we diligently listen for his voice and as we actively engage his truth at deeper and truly transformative levels. Okay, we gotta talk about the parable now, right? I'm acting like somebody else we know here. (laughs) 
We just heard it read a few minutes ago. Jesus gathers a group that day and tells them a story which would have been very relatable in this day and age. Farming and agriculture impacted everybody's life in first century Israel. And so the people who were gathered there on the lakeshore that day understood the effort and the plight of a farmer who was seeking to reap a bountiful harvest. The story is really pretty straightforward. You have a, a sower who sows some seed and that seed is spread throughout his land where it finds four very different fates that yield four very different outcomes. It's pretty much it in a nutshell. So by my estimation, there are four significant components to this story. You have the sower, the seed, the soil, I'm gonna run out of room, and the harvest. Talk about not being able to center things. <laughs> it's harder than you think. <laughs> What's curious to me is that in most English translation of our Bibles, at least the ones that include headings in the Gospels that kind of let us walk along with where we're at in the story, most of them call this particular teaching the parable of the sower or something like the parable of the farmer sowing his seed. Both the sower and the seed are notable components of this story, to be sure. But it seems to me that we often get fixated on these two pieces, and in so doing, we miss an important focal point to understand what Jesus is trying to say here. So we're gonna talk about dirt for a few minutes this morning, if that's okay with you. Because if my friend was here and she was reminding me to look at the white space of this parable, I think I might argue that this is actually the parable of the soil. Think about it, a sower sows. There's nothing terribly remarkable about that. <laughs> and while some of you are uh, farmers out there, and I'm sure that you could school me on how there are any number of varieties of seed and levels of quality of seed, the reality is whether it's corn or beans or wheat or whatever, and no matter if it's a high quality seed or a low quality seed, in and of itself, it's seed. <laughs> If it's in a bag or in your hand, it doesn't have a whole lot of bearing on the harvest, does it? It will never reach its potential in and of itself. But as the story plays out, we learn that while the sower sows and the seed is seedy, <laughs> the real game changer here is the soil. Soil number one, Jesus said, is rather insignificant. The seed falls on it and it can not even penetrate the earth's crust. Now, if you're pragmatically minded like me, you might ask the question, well, then why on earth did the sower sow it there? It's a fair question, but I think that it's most likely this seed fell by happenstance on the soil. You see, in New Testament times, uh, farmland was hard to come by, but everyone needed it. And so farmers had to work to maximize their space. It was not uncommon for one farmer's land to be here and another farmer's land to be right butt up against it. And so the two were gonna have to work together to figure out how to access their crops without damaging the property of the other. In most cases, they created a small border path that would separate the two properties, a small line of dirt that they could walk on in their seeding and weeding and watering and harvesting of their crops. 
But once that path was carved out, there was no further intentional cultivation of that soil. It just got walked on every single day. And as it was walked on, it became more and more compact and harder and harder. This is likely the kind of soil that Jesus was describing here in the first part of this parable. It's not that the sower was just chucking out seed willy-nilly. It was more likely that as he planted his fields, some of the seed fell on the path or was blown onto it, washed onto it, whatever. It got there. And as Jesus tells us, that seed ended up being nothing more than bird feed. Because if a seed can't penetrate the soil, nothing's going to grow from it. The second soil then fared only slightly better. This soil was shallow and it hadn't either been tilled or uh, cultivated properly. It wasn't hard like the footpath soil. In fact, it had a top layer of soil that was soft and supple and the seed could penetrate it. But lying beneath the surface, the text said, was a layer of rock. Now I'm no horticulturalist, I'll tell you, I've struggled to keep a single tomato plant alive this summer. (laughs) But I do know it doesn't take a lot of dirt in order for a seed to germinate. Large seeds need just about an inch of topsoil, and small seeds actually thrive the less dirt you can put on top of them, just a dusting, enough to keep them away from the birds or from being washed away. Here's the problem, though, with that soil. When a seed germinates, its coat cracks and it sends roots downward toward the center of the earth. My dad, who's a master gardener, can't even believe I'm talking about this right now. He's thrilled that I have access to this language, but that's what it does. It puts roots downward. And when it hits a barrier in rock or shale, which is untilled soil, it instinctively sends the force of those roots back up through the seed, out of the top, and it comes out of the topsoil. This is about the time we all get really excited because there's something green that we see and it has the promise of a fruitful harvest. Jesus says this is a bit of a false positive though because without roots that are anchored down in the soil, roots that can provide the plant with moisture and nutrients in rich soil, as that sprout begins to grow, it quickly turns from green to brown and dies before it can ever produce any kind of fruit. He goes on then to describe the third soil, which initially seems ideal for growing something, but we quickly learn that while it is properly cultivated and it is fertile for growing things and that the seed can in fact take root in it, so can a whole bunch of uninvited guests. Now, if you've, int- if you've uh, attempted to grow anything in the state of Indiana, then you know the plight of weeds. <laughs> in my experience, they're quite clever. You usually don't even know they're there until it's too late. Last summer, I planted these seeds. I think the label on it said something like summer garden mix. And I put them on this big barrel on our front porch. And I got really excited because they started to grow. And every day, there was a new color and a new texture in that pot. One morning I walked out and there was this beautiful green sprout right in the middle of the pot. And I got super excited because it was growing really quickly. It was gaining strength and size and I started to anticipate what its blossom would look like. Of course, this wasn't a flower at all. (laughs) 
And over time, it actually took, overtook everything else that was growing in that barrel. It was literally the only thing still living by the time I realized it was not a part of the summer mix gang that I had originally hoped for. That's a thing with weeds, they're tricky. They come in all forms and sizes. They blend right in with whatever else you're growing and they quietly mature. And so if you don't recognize them and remove them quickly enough, they begin to drain the life out of your soil. They absorb its nutrients and its moisture, which keeps them away from your intended plants. Some weeds are so clever that you never actually even see them above the surface of the earth. They stay down below, and when the time is right, just as your plant begins to, to show promise, they do what the text said, they choke it out by the roots. Others, like was my experience, grow tall and seemingly beautiful, but as they grow, they begin to block the sun from the plant that you desire to grow, which of course stunts its growth and never allows it to come to full maturity. Finally then, Jesus describes the ideal soil, that which is well-tended and rich and free of deterrence. And in this soil, he describes a place where the work of the sower who has faithfully planted his seed finds more than just success in the harvest, but true bounty. There are some who believe that at this point in the story, Jesus intentionally used hyperbole saying that this soil yielded a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times worth its normal yield. That probably didn't actually happen anywhere, but the point was this soil was primed to bring in a rich harvest. Now, if Daniel would have kept reading in the book of Matthew beyond where he stopped, or if you'd read this parable in any of the synoptic gospels, because it's in all three, you would find that this is one of the parables where we actually get an explanation of what's going on, at least an explanation of its parts. The sower, we're told, beginning in Matthew 13, verse 19, is the one who spreads the seed, which is the word of God, faithfully. And I think sometimes we stop there when we read this parable and we begin to ask about the harvest the spiritual harvest of our lives, and we make it all about these first two components. We make it about the sower and his or her charisma and enthusiasm in leading and teaching the word of God. Or we make it about the seed, its relevancy in our lives, its quality, and how much it keeps us engaged in Sunday worship or in our Sunday school classes. But if we step back and take a look at the white space of this parable, I think we have to ask the question, what about the soil? Because the text continues saying that in the same way an actual seed's fate is determined by the type of soil that it falls upon, so the soil of our souls will determine the way the seed of God's word can ultimately be harvested in our lives. We cannot be any better at pursuing Christ than we are at receiving his word. So with that in mind, I'll tell you the question I've been asking myself this morning and this week. What is the nature of the soil of my soul? Has it grown hard and unpenetrable? 
Have I neglected it for so long that it's become a place where it's impossible for anything to grow? Nobody likes to admit this, I realize, and I don't think it's something we do intentionally. In fact, I think it happens over time as we just sort of become ritualistic and routine in our pursuit of God. We go to church, we read the Bible, maybe, but we don't do these things with any expectation that God has something new to birth in us. No expectation that anything can grow inside of us. And so over time, our spiritual lives become like trampled footpaths that occasionally receive a sprinkling of God's word. But because the soil has become so compacted, it has no chance to sprout and grow. Maybe your soul soil is shallow at this particular point in life. And so while it appears that you're thriving at the surface, you're actually struggling to move beyond that initial encounter with Christ because you haven't developed healthy roots that allow you to sustain it or that will propel you forward toward him, the center. I think this is actually a really common problem in our world and in the church today. And I think it's why this idea of pursuing Jesus versus just encountering him is such a challenge. Because this journey is not a quick fix. It's not a check the box kind of list or something that we can accomplish and move on. It is something that we must stay in, that we must be committed to as a lifelong journey. It's not just about immediate gratification or the the good feelings we get when we have recognizable growth in our lives. We can easily become zealous about a word that we have heard from God. The question is, can we return to it time and time again and allow itself to take root in our lives? Because without that, we will inevitably burn out. We will grow weary of it and go looking for the next encounter or experience instead of moving in the direction toward him. Some of us have soul soil that is infested with weeds. We have heard from God. We are listening well to him on one hand. It has put down roots. The problem is, so has a bunch of other stuff. We get distracted by the worries and the concerns of the world. So there's this constant tug of war taking place in us. The habits and hangups that nag at us are constantly competing with and sometimes even choking out God's voice as the overarching victorious narrative in our lives. And then thank the Lord, a few of you would say that this morning, the soil of your soul is rich and thriving. It is a place where by God's grace, his word is growing deeply in you and it is guiding and directing you closer and closer to him each day. And you know that this does not happen by happenstance. This is not by chance at all. This requires a steadfastness on your part to endure and to continually take part in practices and habits that help you to cultivate that word deeply in your lives. So what does the soil of your soul look like this morning? It's a pertinent question in my mind because next week we'll, I think we'll get rid of the whiteboard but we're gonna move on into a year-long focus, our soul shift emphasis for the year, where we think about moving from asking God 
to listening to God. It's a season that I have been praying will be a spiritually formative season in the life of our people and our church as a whole. And I can assure you that as a staff, we will teach, preach, and proclaim God's word as farmers who anticipate and expect a bumper crop. But no matter how well the word is preached, no matter what the quality of the word may be, it will not prosper without soil that is properly tended to and prepared for reception. So this morning is really about that, preparing ourselves to hear from God. And I want us to take a few minutes and do a little bit of self-evaluation. I don't know what that looks like for you. You can bow your heads, you can close your eyes, you can kneel, you can stare blankly into space. However it is that you best do some self-reflection and ask God to make that identification for you. What is the soil of your soul like this morning? If you identify with the first type of soil that Jesus described, then maybe you need to ask yourself again, is my faith really in the person of Jesus Christ? And do I believe that he is still active and able to transform and grow in me something new? Maybe you need to commit yourselves today to reapproaching your relationship with God, not out of obligation or duty, but in hope and in trust that as you receive his word and you trust and follow it obediently, he will be faithful to birth in you new life. If your soul's soil seems shallow and rocky, maybe you need to stop chasing after the latest and greatest get spiritual fast scheme. <laughs> And you need to make a move toward cultivating a spirit of steadfastness and patience in your pursuit of Christ. Maybe you need to place yourself in a small group or a community of other believers who are committed to helping you not grow faster, but deeper and staying the course even when growth seems slow and arduous in your life. If you're feeling like your ability to hear God's voice has been choked out by the hustle and the bustle of your lives, by worries and fears and all the other things that demand your time and attention, then I wanna encourage you in this time to commit yourself to finding a new, a place and a time each day where you turn the rest of it off. You don't talk at God, you simply listen for him where you allow his voice to break through all of the other noise and in so doing, express your desire for that voice to be the one that truly guides and leads you. And finally, if you say, I think the soil of my soul is in pretty good condition, first of all, pause there this morning and thank God for that. And then I wanna encourage you to commit yourself to continuing to cultivate that soil in your life because as every good farmer knows, just because you have good soil at one point in the journey does not mean you can leave it to sit idle. You have to constantly work it, constantly cultivate it so that it can reap a harvest time and time again. I can't tell you how excited I am when I think about a group of people like our church committing themselves to truly posturing their lives in a way that is receptive to the word of God. How different would so many things be if we were leaned in and truly listening for his voice?